Sometimes I think, you know, if I just get... What, you know, what happens when your boss loses control? I mean, there's this one story uh, of a guy that worked at a photo lab, and his boss hired a colorblind person to work in the photo lab to do the colored pictures, and uh, he was getting lots of complaints, so he said to the boss, you realize that you hired a person that was colorblind uh, for these, uh, to help edit these colored pictures, and the boss uh, said, you know, I think you just have a low self-esteem and you're hurting someone else, so you should let it go. So that's one example of a boss losing control. Another is this guy runs a photo company, and his idea was uh, he wanted to attract this seminary to a Catholic seminary to start using um, his shop for its photocopy needs. And so he uh, told his employee, he said, you know what you should do is uh, why don't we get a lot of crosses and we'll just hang it all around the Photoshop so when they come in, it'll look like we're really religious, okay? So what happens when you have a boss that's crazy? What do you do? You know, I think all of us have probably worked for a company at one point in time in your life, and if you've worked for a company, as much as you might not have liked it, you you probably wanted to do well, because if it does well, you probably do well. So what happens when the owner of the company or the boss man starts hijacking the progress of the company? What do you say? What do you do? That is the very question we're going to get at today. Peter is going to confront his boss when he thinks he's losing it. He's going to say, boss, I think you're doing it wrong. How does Peter confront him and what is the response well, let's find out together, shall we? Let's open uh, your Bibles. We're in Mark um, chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 22, and we're going to go to 9-1. So we're going to be reading from the ESV. Please pay attention as we read God's word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village, villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And the others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. God, let us treat it gently, but let, it, let us be changed powerfully by it. God, let it not just go into one ear, but go into our hearts and change us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, welcome. We're going through the book of Mark. I'm glad you could join us through this. Uh, Mark is a quick, fast-paced, moving gospel. And uh, we have seen in the first eight chapters... This question has been asked throughout it. Who is Jesus? And every week I've been saying that to you guys, but now this is the exciting part. We are getting to the pivot point, the very middle point of the book of Mark, where that very question is going to be answered of who is Jesus. And the thing is, at this pivot point, we're also going to see this. It moves from who is Jesus to what he has come to do. So the first eight chapters is, who is Jesus? The last eight chapters is, what has Jesus come to do? And that is what we're going to see through, those next, through these next eight chapters. But again, this is the pivot point where we get to the acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Now the thing is, what's interesting is no one, no human person except Jesus himself, has acknowledged correctly who Jesus is. We've seen that devils have acknowledged correctly who Jesus is. We see that the narrator identified who Jesus was. We see that uh, there were um, also God himself in, in Mark 1 acknowledges who Jesus is. But no person, no disciple, no person in the crowd, no one has correctly identified who Jesus is. So here is the first time we see this identification happening. Now, it's very interesting. You notice I read, we kind of go through the whole book of Mark. You notice I, that I read from verse 22. You say, well, how does that correspond with this whole other part of the passage, this, this healing that takes place? You, you'll notice this, that uh, throughout these last couple chapters, the main characters in the stories have been the disciples but here Mark changes focus and makes this man that's blind kind of the main character of that story, of that narrative. Why would Mark make this transition? I think it's because, you'll see of this miracle, it makes it unique and different, is this. Look with me. Is that this miracle, it happens in kind of waves. Okay? There's one healing and then there's a second healing. Nowhere in the Gospels does healing come in waves. Jesus heals. When he heals, it's done. It's right away. But here, the man can see blurly first, and then he can see fully. I think what's happening is the disciples are still the main focus of the story. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to communicate a greater message to the disciples and also foreshadowing what the disciples will do. 
One is they see who Jesus is in a blurry fashion. They don't see Jesus clearly. But we will see Jesus is trying to heal them that second time to see further what is it that I am really supposed to do? You have what you think is an initial reaction of who I am and you're right. But really, you don't see the full story. So why that miracle of this blind man being um, healed in waves, I think is there. Well, to set the scene of this revelation, Mark has not chosen just any ordinary language, ordinary place, but instead he gives us clues to seeing a transition in Jesus' ministry that is taking place. For example, let's look together in the passage. You will see um, verse 27, and Jesus went on with them, his disciples, to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples. First of all, on the way, this word hodo, which is basically used nine times in the next four chapters, is talking about where is Jesus on the way to? Where is he going on the way to? He's on the way to Jerusalem. So what's happening is, they're already saying in his journey now, he is making his journey to the cross. So for the next four chapters, we see the disciples journeying with Jesus all the way to Jerusalem until Jesus is going to the cross. So already, Mark is giving us the image of what Jesus is having to do. He's on the way to Jerusalem on the way to be crucified. And second of all, is the town that they have decided to go to. Um, as you can tell, the town is made, named for Caesar. And what happened with King Herod at that time is uh, it really was an example of Roman domination over Israel. And uh, King Herod the Great uh, had made a temple to revere the emperor Caesar. And then his son ended up naming the town Caesarea Philippi. So, as you can tell, for the disciples, that kind of town was kind of a thorn in the side. It was an example of Roman oppression over Israel. The idea they wanted to be freed from this kind of thing. This was an example of it. Here, even in the center of town, was a grotto. It was named for the, the uh, basically the, for a god named Pan. And Pan was a god that was half goat and half man. And here is that kind of temple in the middle of Israel. And so for them, that would have been shocking. So, in this place, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? I encourage you again, let's look again and see what the disciples say. Who do you say I am? And I'm impressed, the, res the disciples respond correctly. They say, and they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. I mean, they don't say that he's insane like his family did. And uh, they don't call him the devil like uh, the Pharisees did. So obviously they're giving the positive responses that he's heard people say. So that's good. Um, so that's one good thing they said. And then also you see is in, in Peter's response is that they, they don't correspond to what they say. They say that he actually is not just simply a teacher, but he is more than what the crowd says. More than just Elijah, more than John the Baptist, more than a prophet. He is greater than that. He's not simply just a teacher. Can I pick on you, Josie? I'm going to pick on Josie. So Josie's in school. Okay, so I can pick on her. She's in school. Let's say Josie's in a class, Okay. And at the end of the class, the whole semester, the teacher comes to Josie and says, 
you know, no exam. There's been no papers, nothing, the whole class. But at the end of the class, they know that there's going to be an exam. They have no idea what to expect. And so at the end of the class, the teacher says, okay, all that I've taught you all this semester, I'm going to give you, see how you're doing. See how you respond. And this is the question the teacher asks you, Josie. He says, this is what, how well you paid attention to this class. The teacher says, who do you say I am? That's the question. How you answer that is how well you've learned this whole class and how well you've done. Who do you say I am? Now, what would Josie think? First, that's a little weird, okay, first of all. And second, I always say, you know, that teacher thinking that all that he or she has taught comes down to who they are, uh, they must be a little full of themselves, am I right? Who would gauge how much you've learned on acknowledging who they are as a person? But that's what Jesus does. And the thing is, that doesn't take the disciples by shock. Instead, they finally come to the place. They've seen um, him heal people. They've seen him heal lepers, raise someone from the dead. They've seen him feed 5,000 people. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen all these things. And he talks about the kingdom of God. You know what? It means to learn about the kingdom of God. It means to know who Jesus is. And they finally get that. And so... Here he goes and posits the question to them. So who do you say I am? Have you learned? Do you get it? We've been waiting this all, a few months. This is it. This is the key. And who, of course, who's going to respond first? Peter, of course. Mr. Enthusiasm, you know? Mr. Go get a Mr. Hand raised first like this, you know? He's going to answer first. And he says, you are the Christ, Christos in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, basically meaning the anointed one. You are the king of kings. You are the one that God says will free us, will make Israel great, will heal the world, will heal all of us. You are the mighty one. You are the king over David. You are anointed. You will save us. But Peter sees blurry. Even in that response, he does not see the full picture. Verse 30, I encourage you to look at that. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We've seen this before. Jesus doesn't talk about, he says if he's performed some miracles, he doesn't want the crowds to get crazy. So he tells people don't tell anyone. But I think it's different here. Because he says, and he strictly charged them, the actual word in Greek is he rebukes them. I think he rebukes them here, and that word strongly, rebuke, is because Peter has not responded correctly on who he is. He doesn't fully get it. And you see that how Jesus continues to speak to them about what he's supposed to do. And he teaches them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. (laughs) Sometimes we forget this when we read Mark, but um, you know, Mark is a companion of Peter. So Mark is writing really the stories that Peter is telling him. So here we have this is the, the storyteller of Mark talking about himself 
in not the nicest way. Am I right? Peter is trying to tell us something. The very writer, the very storyteller of this book is revealing something about himself to tell us something here. Something profound. To even really open himself up to be incredibly vulnerable. This is what I said. This is what I did. Now I want you to get into Peter's shoes. Imagine you're on the ground floor of something big. Right? Let's say, um, I got Wisconsin analogies, Culver's, okay? Let's say you're in Sauk City and it's the first Culver's and you're working for, is it Mr. Culver? I don't know who it is. But you're working for him, okay? And you, um, you know, you're just flipping hamburgers, but you're, you know, kind of raised up and you realize that Culver's, it's taken off, right? You start to plant other stores and you are, you are on the ground floor of something big, something huge, and you know it is going to take off and there's going to be a Culver's in Colorado soon, which there is, you know, that's how crazy this restaurant's going to be. But let's say Mr. Culver, before it makes it big, you know, and you're kind of his right-hand man. He brings you in and says, you know what? What do you think about what's going to happen to Culver's? And you're like, it's going to be huge. It's going to be gigantic. It's going to be big. And he says, do you know? I don't think so. I'm just going to stay here in Sauk City. I'm not going to expand anymore. But you've worked so hard. You've seen how it can take off. You've seen what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, he stops short. Now think about Peter, a fisherman. He's never been something big. He's never been famous. He's never been popular. He's never been one of the other rabbis, you know, little prodigies. He's a no-name. And now, but he is a part of something big, right? Something huge. He's around a guy who has amazing power. And where are they now? They're in Caesarea Philippi, and he's saying, you know what? This city will soon be ours. Roman domination will be over. You know who I'm part of now? I'm part of Team Jesus. A team that if I, along with him, and we go on our way back to Jerusalem, he will be king and we will rule this world and I will be his right-hand man. And what does Jesus say instead? You know, I can see Peter. He like... He calls Jesus aside. Now, this is, this is Jesus, okay? He calls Jesus aside. He says, okay, can I just talk to you about this for a little bit? And just talks to him individually. He says, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to happen that way. It's supposed to happen this way. The Messiah is supposed to conquer, rule, dominate. You don't get it. And then we see Jesus respond. We see Jesus correctly rebuke Peter. And like he said to Satan when he was on uh, the temptation in the wilderness, get behind me, adversary, which Satan is translating the Greek. Get behind me, adversary. You do not have the right way in mind. Please hear this. Peter was going to lead Jesus on a path that would not solve the problem. 
Jesus was saying to the disciples and then saying to Peter when he turns around and rebukes Peter, he's saying this, Peter, disciples, the problem is greater than you think. It's greater than you think. You think my domination over Israel will solve this problem? It will not. The true king is the one that must face death in order that you may have life. Triumphalism, earthly reign, earthly power, esteem can't defeat the problems of this world. In fact, those are the problems that we have in this world. They have caused pain and suffering and death. And the only way they can be defeated is a perfect king taking on the ugliness of this world so that a new king will reign on this earth and you will be freed from death and sin. Please hear this. Jesus' rebuke of Peter is not his rejection of Peter, but his correction. You know, I don't know if you've gone to many churches. I see it in many churches. They say, upon, you know, Peter, upon this rock, this church will be built, right? And so they sometimes they're on the cornerstone of churches, right? I want one on a cornerstone of a church that says, get behind me, Satan, right? That's also something that was said to Peter, right? And we think, good thing we don't have this kind of thinking that Peter does. Good thing we've, we can see clearly. We don't see trees. We see clearly. Well, a question for you. What generation was like Peter in going against authority? Love to buck authority. Pull people aside tell you this is how it really is. What generation among us love to buck authority? Come on. Uh, the boomers, right? To buck authority. I mean, this is your chance. I'm not going to be like you, mom and dad. I'm not going to be like you, grandpa and grandma. I am going to do something different. We are going to change this world. We are going to be free. We're going to do something different. We're going to figure out self-actualization. We're going to live young for our whole lives. We're going to have freedom from authority. We're going to have peace. We're going to have sexual freedom. We're going to move away from home. We're going to find our own life and our own way. Why do I bring out the boomers? There was an article in Washington Post just this past week, and it was very morbid about what is happening with baby boomers, people in their 50s and 60s. From 2000 to 2010, the increase in suicides among boomers has increased 50%. Actually, the highest, um, it's actually moved beyond motor vehicle accidents as the number one death for, for boomers is suicide. And it's a major problem. And that's why the, the Post brought it up and many other papers have brought it up too. And here's some behaviorists. These aren't Christians making these comments. These are behaviorists analyzing boomers. And this is what they say. There was an illusion of choice where people thought they'd be able to recreate themselves again and again. These people feel a greater sense of disappointment because their expectations of leading glorious lives didn't come to fruition. One of these boomers says, she recalls the shock of realizing that the good times were not eternal. I just thought everything was going to continue to improve. Again, commenting on boomers, it says, believers, they believed from an early age in the power of medicine. Boomers are more likely than their elders to turn to drugs, alcohol, even plastic surgery to mask their problems. And this behavior says, boomers do not want to suffer. 
How are we going to solve our problems, boomers? A good economy, modern medicine, freedom, American triumphalism, those things can't solve the problem of our souls. The problem is greater than you think. I don't need Jesus. I've got everything I need. I've got a good American economy. I can look young forever. I can take drugs to make me feel better. This evidence, these data shows no. There is still a problem. It goes deeper than the outside. It goes all the way to the heart. That triumphalism in America cannot solve it. There has to be something else. And Jesus says this. I encourage you to look again. The passage here. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, psyche, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. This Greek psyche, it means the whole self, the soul, healing the in-depth parts of all of you. It's interesting, Jesus goes to the crowd now. And every time that Jesus has been with the crowds, teaching to them, he's been, um, he's been teaching, but he's been performing miracles when he's with the crowds. And now something changes. Jesus doesn't just show who he is and his power and his, his love and all those things. Now he shows what he has to do. Yeah, this is who I am. This is what I'm able to do. But this is what it means to follow me. You know, it's more than just acknowledging me by title. It's acknowledging me and following me that it, what it means to be a part of what I'm doing. It's just not saying the right title of who I am. It's following me in who I am. And Jesus says, deny yourself. The world can't redeem you, but I can. Thing is, for Peter and the disciples, in their way that they thought the world would redeem them, it would not. In fact, if you try to usher in the kingdom like Jesus does, you are going to face trials. When you give up authority, when you decide I'm going to live for others rather than myself, when I'm going to try to live for Jesus and not just my own gain, it is different than how the world works. And Jesus makes this very shocking claim to them. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. It is such an overused thing among us. We have a cross behind us. We have crosses on our necks. We have crosses everywhere. But this is the first time Jesus mentions the cross ever to them. And what is the picture that they had the cross uh, of the cross? Not one hanging around their neck. Not one that's on tons of buildings. Not one in their back. The cross was a picture of shame. It was the picture of rejection of the world. That you would carry an instrument of your own death. And go and be crucified upon it. And Jesus said, this is what it means to follow me. This kind of rejection. That would have been extremely shocking. But this is what Jesus says has to happen. And he says, if you deny yourself, 
you will become free. Please hear this. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Jesus take over, the more truly ourselves we become. The more I resist Christ and to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity, I, I then become dominated by my own heredity, my own upbringing, my own surroundings, my own natural desires. In fact, the more I deny myself and cling to Jesus, the more human I become rather than being slaves to the world. That Washington Post study should show that. So what path must we then follow? Peter, what are you going to have to do? What is step X, step Y? What, is, what are you going to have to do? Peter didn't know what he had to do. He didn't know the way that he was supposed to go. So what is my application to you? I'm going to give firm applications. You ready? Okay. Everyone here needs to give up half their income and go downsize and give all their money to charity, right? Is that what my application should be? Everyone here should say, I'm going to get off the grid in America and I am going to go to another nation and serve Jesus in a third world country. Is that the application? I don't know what the application is for you for this. Peter didn't know the path he was going to have to follow when he followed Jesus. He didn't know what he was going to face. But what I will say to you is this. If you deny yourself and follow Jesus, he will lead you in a way that will challenge you and press you and push you like you've never been pushed before. And he is good at pressing the buttons that we cling to. For the proud, it will mean denying status and honor. For the greedy, it will mean denying appetite for wealth. For the complacent among us, it will mean denying the life of ease. For the faint-hearted, it will mean denying craving of security. For the angry, it will mean denying the need for revenge or to be right. For the cynical, it will mean denying the need to write off people. If you follow Jesus and deny yourself, he will press you in those ways. He will change you in these, those ways. And he will take you places that you never knew you would go. And you will find more of yourself, no matter how hard it will be and difficult. At the end, Jesus gives hope. He says to them all, he says, some of you will see there will come a day we you'll not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What gives us the motivation? What gives us the strength to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus? It's by seeing the power of the kingdom. By seeing that, then we can respond out of joy and gratitude rather than out of guilt an obligation. I'll give my one sports analogy a month, right, Carl? One a month. In, Fort Hen in Lake Fenton, Michigan, at halftime, at homecoming, 
five seniors had a conspiracy. And the conspiracy was this, to make this sophomore the homecoming king. And they had actually hatched this conspiracy during the lunch hour where they take the votes for who the homecoming king will be. And they told the whole lunch crowd, they said, you know what? This sophomore, we're giving up our chance of being homecoming king. You, this is who the king will be. He will be the only person on the ballot. This sophomore, Eli, how did they hatch such a plan when Eli was at school? Well, Eli wasn't at school because he was very sick. He had withered down. He used to be on the football team to just under like 110 pounds. He was light and fragile and he had leukemia. And he didn't know this plan was being hatched. So he arrives at homecoming at the game and they announce who the king is and it's Eli, this sophomore, come out onto the field. Here he is in his wheelchair being pushed out. And they placed the crown on his head. And his mom records in this article, I've never seen him happier. I've never seen him beaming so much. And seven days later, Eli died. That is the picture that we have of us. We are in that chair, sick, dying. The problem is greater than we could ever think. And Jesus condescended from his throne, from his crown, and he came down to earth and he put the crown on our heads. And he took our sickness and our death upon himself so that we would be called sons and daughters of God. Peter, you don't get it. You don't see this is a greater problem than you could ever realize. You are sick and dead. Sin will destroy you. The only person that can heal sin is God himself. And he has to take it to the cross and all the way to death so that you will be called the sons and daughters of God. That is the good news. See yourself as Eli, you were sick and dead. But Jesus wants to give you a crown because he's taken it for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But you came in a different way than the world expected. You put in a kingdom that is upside down. Let us live in the power of that kingdom that we would deny this world and live for your world, for your kingdom. And we do it out of gratitude and love because you gave everything for us. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.